Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Blake Resnick. Blake is the founder of Brink Drones, which is a really interesting, unique company and one that, that Touch Ventures is an investor in. It's the first product on the market designed for police tactical units, SWAT teams as you really know them, to help in high-risk barricade, hostage, and active shooter situations. So, you know, a really very specific and very high-stakes product. Uh, so, Blake, thanks for, for coming on and talking about this. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, so Blake, your origin story is a little different than, than most founders. You know, as, as a VC, I get pitched all day long, and a lot of it's like, oh, yeah, we were good roommates at Stanford Business School, and we came up with a more efficient way to deliver smoothies in Palo Alto, uh, and that's why we're starting this company. Uh, you came to it from a di very different situation, realization, and, and I think a, a far more serious place than most. So how did this all come together? Yeah, definitely. I mean, really, really what got us started on on our, our products now um, was was the the Mandalay Bay uh, October 1 shooting in, in Las Vegas. So um, that's it's my hometown. It's where I grew up. I, I unfortunately knew uh, a lot of people who, who were at the shooting um, and it, it really kind of brought up this question for me like maybe maybe there's a use case for some of this technology we've been working on in the context of perimeter security but instead in the hands of public safety uh, for responding to incidents like like active shooter situations. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it started uh, it started a pretty crazy journey. Um, I ended up just cold calling uh, the captain and lieutenant in charge of, of Las Vegas SWAT. Uh, they they took the call, uh, set up set up some coffee, um, and we, we ended up just having a conversation about October one and and what happened in uh, in in that particular event. But it, it also ended up evolving into a broader conversation about the kind of the kind of situations they have to deal with regularly, uh, and and the tools that they need in order to be able to execute those missions more more safely. So what happened next? So I mean, it, from from there, uh, got our first prototype out uh, about three months later. Um, did a big demo with you know Las Vegas's uh, SWAT team. Yeah, showed off the technology, got some feedback, went back, redesigned the drone, showed it off again. Uh, and at, at the end of that, something really interesting happened. So how did it get field tested? Uh, they invited me out to go on call with them for a while to actually test the technology. So that, that started a, a fascinating time in my life where I went on call for about six months uh, with the busiest SWAT team in the United States. Uh, and, and in that time did well over 20 call outs, barricades, hostage situations, like you, you name it. Uh, and and really developed our, our core product. Well, this, this wasn't even going to be my next question, but I kind of can't not ask it. Why is Vegas kind of the busiest SWAT team in the country and has more hostage situations than the <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I think a couple, a couple things contribute. Um, I mean, first, Las Vegas Metro is, is one of the top 10 largest police departments in the country. So they, they are just kind of to start off a, a large police department. Um, I mean, so Las, Las Vegas is, is, is one of the top 10 largest uh, police departments in, in the country. So I, I think that contributes. Um, we do also get our, our share of crime here. And I think, I think the last part that's, that's really important and, and gives them a lot more missions. Um, in, in Las Vegas, SWAT is called out on many more uh, high-risk warrant searches uh, than, than other cities. 
So that's that's sort of one of the core uh, core responsibilities of the SWAT team in Las Vegas. Whereas a lot of other cities just use, you know, normal officers for that kind of work. So that that ends up giving them uh, giving them a lot more missions. Got it. So so you're out there with these guys for for six months, and and what do you then realize about the technology that you need to build? that wasn't obvious to you before you had this experience. Yeah, I mean it was it was a lot. I got I got a ton wrong in in the early days about what this thing actually had to do. Um, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one example. Like uh, the, the first versions of our drone um, just had normal cameras on them uh, to you know to see suspects and help with navigation. Um, but I mean after going on some missions, what we learned is all of these things are happening at you know 3 a.m. Uh, across the board. And you really have to have the ability to see in zero light conditions to have any shot of being able to, to do one of these missions. Um, so we had to go and completely redesign the entire optic system on the drone. Uh, or, you know, we'd, we'd fly into a structure and there'd be trash everywhere, uh, you know, a really confined area. We'd crash and then it would be mission over. So that happened once or twice in, in the early days. Uh, so, so we ended up developing a self-writing system. So after a crash, you know, we can recover and continue on uh, with the mission. I mean, it was a whole, it was a whole litany of of things like that where we just didn't. In the, I didn't in the very early days fully understand the use case they had to deal with, uh, and then through the process of actually calling out, um, learned exactly what our our technology had to do, and ultimately listened to our customers. So. By 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 the end of that, um, you know, we, we we did start really materially affecting the way that that these sort of callouts would would go down. Um, where you know before you know SWAT might not have known that there was a second person in a building, for example, and we'd be able to find them, you know, holding a weapon, hiding in a closet uh, before before officers were sent inside. Um, or uh, you know maybe maybe they had a pretty high level of confidence that someone was inside of a house, uh, but they weren't able to to communicate with that person. They weren't able to talk to him. So they'd send the drone in. We'd be able to find the person, and then through the drone, you know, hostage negotiators would actually be able to to talk to the to the suspect, um, where before that that wasn't possible. Uh, or I mean, things as simple as us being able to enter enter a house and search the entire thing, and then tell. You know, tell first responders that their their person isn't there. Um, all of that was happening, and uh, yeah, at the end of that, Vegas became our, our first customer. Yeah, and, and so now that you have police departments that you work with, and you're shipping a lot of product, um, what do you think? And when you were thinking about, okay, what can we do to make these drones unique to facilitate the kind of information that can save lives? Um, from kind of how you saw it in your head. To how it's working on practice right now. Um, where do you think you got it right, and, and where do you think you need to evolve? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, at, at, at end of the day, what our what our technology is really designed to do um, is to to enter structures, look around, find people, and then communicate with them uh, without without risking anyone's life. Um, I mean, our, our, our technology is already being used as an alternative to, to no-knock warrant searches by, by some of the cities that, that buy it. So I mean, that, that, that core kind of idea and functionality, I think we got completely right. Uh, instead of risking you know, direct confrontation between police officers and suspects, uh, instead you know, send in a one-pound drone uh, to find and communicate the person, de-escalate, 
and uh, hopefully end the situation there without ever having you know, to send armed SWAT operators into a house to physically arrest someone. So that, that core concept we definitely got right. Um, what, what we still have to work on, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of the usability stuff, making it as easy to fly as possible, uh, implementing more autonomy so, so anyone can grab the sticks and be able to execute a mission really easily. Um, you know, smaller form factor, so it's, it's easier to transport and, and, and kind of deal with for, for these operators. Um, yeah, I mean, better, better video systems, better, better optics, better microphones, better speakers, so all of that is, is actively improving. Um, you just got back not too long ago from Miami where, where you were using Lemur to help out with the Champlain Tower situation. Um, what were you guys doing there? Yeah, that was, that was, that was a fascinating one. Um, so we, we ended up getting a call uh, from, um, from, from one of the, the, the first responder groups there. Um, basically, the situation was uh, there, there were structural engineers on site. Um, when we were there, about two-thirds of the building had, had collapsed, but one-third of the building uh, was, was still standing. Um, and and what, what everyone was very worried about was basically that one-third of the building uh, falling on the first responders that were looking for people uh, in, in the rubble pile. Um, because they, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the structural integrity of, of that part of the building was, was compromised. So there was this, this underground portion of the building um, where, where they wanted to be able to inspect uh, some, some specific columns and, and areas to, to try to better assess uh, what, what was going on. So really, really our mission was uh, taking the drone, flying it underneath the still standing portion of the tower into a subterranean environment, uh, and, and then searching uh, for, you know, for, for structural damage in some specific locations they were wor worried, worried about. And, yeah, ultimately that's that's what we did. Um, what do you think in terms of you? Know, you're you're down there. You're obviously thinking twenty four seven. I know you're a little bit now. Um, it, it, how worried should everyone be about the structural integrity uh, of other buildings in cities like Miami? And how can you use different forms of technology, whether it's drones or something else, um, to be able to predict this better and deal with it? I mean, as, as far as inspection work, I think I think drones absolutely do have a place in that. I mean, they're they're just they're so quickly able to collect a lot of information um, and then store it uh, for you know for as much time as you need in order to keep records on on how how buildings are doing. So yeah, I mean, I think I think drones absolutely have a place in that. I think regulators have to step up and um, you know ensure that something like this doesn't happen again and. Uh, I mean, I think I think there's there's also a tremendous opportunity for for other sensor suites and AI and automated detection to, to all kind of play a part. Yeah, absolutely. So before you, you started uh, Brank and created Lemur, you were working on a product that effectively would have said, rather than building a wall at the border, we can use drones to achieve the same purpose. Um, even though it's not what you're doing now, I've, I've always thought to be a fascinating concept. Walk us through both kind of how you saw it and how it would have worked. I mean, ultimately. Ultimately, the, the thought with that system is is you basically have a drone nest um, placed at at you know increments along an area that that you want monitored. So maybe maybe every mile you have one of these things. And what what they do? Uh, they're solar powered. Um, 
they, they also form something called a self-healing mesh network between nodes. So they basically build their own, um, you know, coverage for, for radio communications. Uh, and then you have drones kind of hopping from base station to base station, uh, each time getting their battery swapped out for, for a new fresh version and, and continuing on their mission. Uh, and kind of in between those hops, um, you know, they, they have cameras, they have thermal imagers, and they have some AI so they, they, they can understand what, what they're seeing. And if they, if they do find something that's, that's anomalous and requires, uh, you know, requires someone to take a look, uh, a human operator would take control of the drone, fly it down, uh, and then actually like talk to, to the person of interest, uh, utilizing a, a two-way audio system on board that, that bird. So really, really that was the idea. Um, I mean, a way, a way to kind of automate like large-scale perimeter security tasks. And one thing I think is really interesting about that, that kind of technology is it, it has a use case, a compelling use case for Homeland Security but it also has deep, highly compelling use cases for almost every other industry. I mean, you start thinking about like putting these uh, every couple of miles along 500 mile long oil pipelines. So you can detect corrosion, you know, before an oil leak starts. Um, or you start thinking about putting them in, you know, large agricultural applications with uh, multi-spectral cameras. So they can, in an automated way, you know, uh, inspect tens of thousands of acres of farmland and, and, and give reports on, on how, how crops are doing over time. Um, or, I mean, renewable energy, you know, large-scale solar farms uh, or, or, or wind turbine inspection. I mean, what, what, this, what this general idea kind of enables is, is drones to complete their full missions without a human being ever thinking about or, or touching them. You know, the drone would autonomously take off from one of these nests um, do its thing, collect data, process that data, give actual insights to end users, like, you know, like there's uh, a car here along the border, or this section of oil pipeline is corroded and needs to be maintained, or this section of crops isn't doing well, um, you know. Uh, and then the drone returns to its base station, charges itself, and, and does it over again. My opinion, this is the clear future of, of the entire drone industry. Like the whole, the whole thing is, is going to go in this direction. A couple of follow-ups there. The first is, look, Trump, for political reasons, wanted to build a border wall, obviously wasn't really able to do so. Um, that's not a priority for Biden, but the Biden administration is clearly struggling with a massive migrant crisis at, at the Mexico border. Um, have, they, have you been talking to them about this, or were, do, do you feel like right now, if they were able to deploy drones, it, it could help mitigate the crisis, or do you think at, at this point it, they're too far gone? I think it's a very powerful technology. I mean, the, the, the promise of this is live monitored video and thermal imaging surveillance of, of the entire border all of the time. Um, and not, not just that, but the ability to, to fly down and, and actually talk to people. I mean, this is, it's a tremendously powerful and, and interesting capability. Uh, and I, I, think, I think it absolutely does have a home. Um, in, in this, this type of use case. Um, our, 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 focus, our focus right now has really been on, you know, on, on indoor uh, tactical type operations. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the stuff with, with CBP and, and large scale border control remains of interest for sure.
So, so you've already laid out, even, even just in the last few minutes, a pretty compelling, comprehensive vision for what drone technology can do to either make certain tasks safer, more efficient, more effective, whatever it is. Now, I know you sort of deal with government because they're your customer, they're your end user right now on Lemur, but ultimately for, for the vision that you have in your head to become a reality, what does government need to do to get us there? I'll tell you, r really what it comes down to is, is, is FAA. Um, it, it, really, it really does come down to FAA. Uh, I mean, the, the, the major unlocking function of, of the entire drone industry, and, and this thing is going to be, you know, a hundred plus billion dollar industry, but, but something has to happen before that can occur. And uh, it's, it's really FAA, what's called uh, BVLOS, or Beyond Visual Line of Sight. So th th there's currently a rule uh, in, um, you know, by, by the FAA stating that drones can't fly uh, beyond the visual line of sight of an operator, which seriously limits the ability for, for these systems to, to have good business cases. Because end of the day, like a person with a pair of binoculars can do almost everything that a person with, with a drone can. Um, it's, you know, it, it just, have, requiring a person to be right next to these systems makes them dramatically less valuable than if they could just be fully autonomous and do their thing without a human being ever touching it. And in order for that to happen, they have to be able to fly beyond the visual line of sight uh, of, of people. So really, really that's what it comes down to. And there has been movement. Um, I mean, Amazon has already gotten approvals for, for package delivery in a beyond visual line of sight way. Uh, other companies have gotten approvals for, uh, for agricultural uh, monitoring, uh, also utilizing beyond visual line of sight. Uh, we also have been operating under uh, what's called tactical beyond visual line of sight. So an exemption for situations where, where human lives are in immediate uh, risk, uh, you, can, uh, you can get around some of these rules uh, in, in certain specific ways. So th there is progress, but um, what, what's really needed is, uh, is a large scale you know, path and approval process uh, for, for beyond visual line of sight drone operations at, at, a, national, an, at a national scale. That's that's what we need. What what politicians and regulators, if, if any, do you think understand that and share that vision and are really trying to push it forward? Uh, not not many, um, not many. Yeah, um, that's the problem. Yeah, I mean there 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 are lots of internal folks at at the FAA that I think are are thinking about this. Um, there there are also you know large scale corporate interests pushing for it. I mean, Amazon immediately comes to mind. Google comes to mind for their, their package delivery services. Um, off the top of my head, though, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not aware of any real evangelist uh, elected officials. Um, and I mean, one, one more thing I'll say here is drone technology is it's really an important part of our, of our future. Like, no matter how you look at this, drones are going to be an important part of, of the future of, of humans globally. And right now, all of the best drone companies, all of the best drone technologies, these, these are Chinese entities. Uh, they're, they're DJI, Autel, companies, companies like this. You look at, at the percentage between, 
you know, U.S. market share in the drone industry and and uh, China's market share in the drone industry, it's it's not even comparable. Like, ninety plus percent uh, is is coming from these Chinese entities. So I I would argue it's 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 actually important from a national security perspective that that this sort of uh, this sort of regulation is passed because it will completely unleash the the United States drone industry. And, and enable these strategically important technologies uh, to, to develop at the rate they need to. Because right now, we just are not doing this as well as, as China is. And that's going to be a problem going forward. And is it a real concern? Sounds like you think the answer to this is going to be yes, that if China is creating the drones that are inspecting nuclear power plants and helping resolve hot situations and different things like that, that they're able to then use that for their own surveillance purposes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's not it's not my opinion. It's our our federal government's opinion um, and the opinion of the Department of Defense. I mean, they're they're the ones who are saying these things. Um, yeah, I mean, not not to mention the concerns about great power competition and 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 wanting you know a domestic supply chain for for the technologies of the future. Um, I mean, even even if that surveillance question was you know was not a major concern and it definitely is um, even in that case we would still want a, a US supply chain for these sorts of technologies or else we're just going to be left behind and this is it's a really it's a really bad technology for the US not to be a leader in um, speaking kind of surveillance and policing one of the things that I was really impressed with the first time I met you was the ability for lemur to be used kind of in in lieu of no knock warrants so obviously as we're seeing more and more uh, examples of kind of police brutality leading to the deaths of innocent people and we're seeing more and more strife over that um, one of the things that sort of leads to that is a no knock warrant that then leads to a shooting where someone, innocent, whether it's a police officer or, or someone in the household uh, ends up getting hurt or killed. Um, how could you use lemur instead to kind of avoid all that risk? And end of the day, and I mean, this is, this is, this is a big trend in policing now. Um, going from no-knock warrant searches, what are also called dynamic searches, uh, to something called surround and call out. Um, so this, this idea that you don't go guns blazing into a house to arrest someone, but instead take it slow, surround the place, call out before you escalate. Um, this, is, this is a major trend, and it's something that, that our, our technology feeds right into and, and largely enables. Um, I mean, the way, the way our stuff helps in these types of situations, it goes into a structure so people don't have to. I mean, ultimately, it really is that, that simple. Instead of sending in armed officers to physically arrest someone, instead you establish a secure perimeter, you send in the drone, you find the person, you talk to them through the drone, and in a lot of cases, after that they just surrender. Um, but even if they don't, now law enforcement has all of this information that they didn't have before that they can use to much more safely execute that arrest. You know, They know what the inside of the house looks like, they know where the suspect is. They know if the suspect's armed. Uh, you know, they they know if if the person is also doing okay medically. Um, you know, or at least at least well enough to, to walk around and communicate. They they just have I and mean, they know how many people are in the structure. 
all of this information to, to much better plan how they're going to deal with the situation. And maybe even more fundamentally, it just reduces the, the risk, right? Your drones don't have, they're not weaponized. They don't, yeah. they can't shoot people. And so the kind of misunderstanding that it leads to innocent lives on either side being lost um, just can't happen. And, and if, if they were using, you just, you're just not risking, you know, gunfights with, with, with our, our type of technology. I mean, the drone weighs, you know, a pound and change. Um, it, it, all the propellers are, are fully ducted. It carries no weapons. The only thing it does carry is basically a cell phone um, for, for two-way audio. So it's, 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 it's not designed to hurt or kill. It, it's not capable of, of either of those things. Um, it's, it's really just designed to find and, and talk to someone and try to de-escalate a situation uh, so that an armed conflict can't can't happen. So let me switch topics a little bit within the drone world. Um, and it's not really what you're working on as much, but w how do you see drone either as a solution or maybe not a solution to kind of the last mile delivery problem um, that really exists in, in big cities where just the streets are totally congested with delivery people and delivery trucks and packages everywhere and all that? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, think, I think the really compelling use case for drones probably isn't the, the the you know New York cities of the world. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's much more um, more suburban areas because you know you start you start talking you start talking about a big city like a, a truck you know that can hit every single building along along the street pretty capable pretty capable. I mean it can carry a, a yeah. lot of stuff. Um, there isn't there isn't a lot of wasted time. But you start talking about you know a suburban area um, or or, or uh, you know even even a rural area. Uh, now delivery trucks have to drive ten minutes out of their way uh, in order to to execute a, a handoff. Um, so this is this is really the area where drones uh, excel. Um, where they can be deployed from a distribution center uh, and fly you know even ten miles away, uh, deliver a package, go back and 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 do it again. So what, what I really expect to see is, is probably not drones for, for delivery in, in you know, major metropolitan areas for a while. Uh, I think they're going to start off in more suburban rural areas uh, where they can really provide a lot of efficiency um, and then probably, probably grow from there. Um, so you're, you're from Las Vegas. You founded the company in Las Vegas. They were your first customer, but you guys are moving to Seattle. Yeah. How come? Yeah, that's right. I mean, for us, it's 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 all a question of of talent. Um, just just where where really excellent people uh, all already are. Um, and I, I love Vegas. We're always going to have a presence here. Um, we're we're actually not moving manufacturing uh, operations and training. Um, so so those things are are going to stay here. Um, but we are we are moving kind of the the core functions of, of, of the business engineering sales you know that that kind of thing uh, the corporate headquarters to to Seattle. So does that the, so I was just you know there's obviously a really big push in the Rust Belt and other parts of the country you know for them all to have their own versions of, of Silicon Valley. Um, and Las Vegas is a place that between you and Zappos and others you know was kind of making a similar, similar push. Um, is the problem always just going to be, though, that for as long as engineers only want to be in a handful of places, um, that's ultimately where companies like you are going to have to go? Or, or is there a solution to making 
Vegas uh, attractive enough for engineers or grow enough engineers directly in Nevada um, to be able to, you know, not have to move? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question, and it's 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 one um, it's one I've I've been struggling with. I mean, the, this decision was really hard. I mean, I, as I said, Vegas is my hometown. I, I care, you know, I care I care about the city. It's it's just, I mean, from 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 my perspective. It's it's us not being able to hire great people easily. Uh, I mean, this is a terminal problem. It, we just it's just it's just tremendously critical to be able to onboard folks uh, fast who who are great. And basically, in fact, I think literally every engineer that we've hired in Vegas uh, has had to relocate from one of the tech hubs uh, in uh, into the city. And there's just there's just a smaller subset of people. Um, you know, willing willing to relocate from a tech hub to Vegas. It's it's just it's just not a huge subset. So I, I think I think we've hired great people, but I you know I have real concerns about whether or not it's it's scalable. It's it's really a major chicken and egg problem. Yeah, no, it, it is, and there's you know obviously a lot of money and investment going into trying to make other parts of this country tech hubs, but but you know. There's the thesis theory of it, and then there's the reality that you're living of it, and they're still two very different things. Let me let me re- ask the last question to sort of stay on Vegas, which is, you know, everyone listening to this podcast has probably been to Vegas at least once, and they know about the gambling and the casinos and the nightclubs and the restaurants. Give me like three. You grew up there, you live there. Give me like three things that you think are really great about Vegas that aren't that well known and obvious that our listeners should know about if they're there. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think. I think it's actually it's it, it can really be an extremely beautiful place, um, like not not necessarily center of the city, but um, I mean places places like Red Rock, places like Mount Charleston, um, uh, just just really incredible natural beauty. Um, I mean the sunsets too are uh, are are just just amazing here. Um, also say the food scene uh, is is pretty extraordinary, uh, especially like Chinatown and the the mom and pop restaurants and strip malls. Like you can really find some 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 amazing stuff. Right. And yeah, I mean all all of the obvious stuff as well is 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 pretty cool. Um, I mean the uh, the shows on the strip and the trade shows that we come through. Um, that all remains, you know, very exciting and, and kind of unique about the city. Yeah, very cool. Blake Redzik, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Truly a pleasure.